What a week, registered trademark here in the Valley. So today on CityCast Las Vegas, we're here with contributor April Corbin Gurness and lead producer Sonia Cho Swanson. And we're going to talk about what is going on this week with the GOP caucus, or maybe not to caucus kerfuffle, new updates in the Rob Tellis murder trial of journalist Jeff Gehrman, and how road construction is affecting small businesses. It's Friday, October 20th. I'm David Figler, and here's what Las Vegas is talking about. April, Sonia, welcome to the Friday News Roundup. Thanks for having me back. Thanks, David. Hey. Yeah, good to see you both. Yeah. Hey, David, so before we jump into our regular roundup of the news, um, I wanted to jump in with a quick message, if that's all right. Oh, well, as the lead producer, yes, that is your right. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we're not going to be discussing this topic in today's news roundup because we generally stick to local news. But I know that the the tragedy and, and the violence right now in Israel and Gaza weighs heavy in all of our minds right now. I think a lot of people here in Las Vegas are grieving They're mourning the loss of friends and family and hometowns. They're afraid for the safety of their loved ones. And people are afraid for their safety here, too, uh, because wars have a way of crossing borders. And both anti-Semitic and anti-Muslim sentiment is harming people in our community today. You might be feeling complicated about the news or you might be feeling a lot of clarity about it. Either way, I think, I hope we can feel complicated and also act We can ask our elected officials to denounce all forms of violence and de-escalate the conflict. And if you want to donate to humanitarian relief efforts, I'll put a link in the show notes to some vetted organizations. And one last thought, um, I actually heard a a rabbi quote a Bedouin doctor on NPR the other day, and she said that the real dividing line is not between Israelis and Palestinians, but between those who believe violence is the answer and those who believe there is another way. So... On that note, thank you for letting me see my piece. Hand on the baton back to you, David. Okay. Well, um, we do have some local things to talk about, and and I I appreciate you very much, Sonia. Um, Mm -hmm. So let's just jump into our news roundup. Um, We're going to start with the GOP. What are the Republicans doing here, April? I guess a bunch of presidential candidates have signed up, but not for the same thing. I think this is confusing to a lot of people, especially some potential Republican voters. Uh, what's happened? Oh, yeah. So it's well, let me just preface this by saying it's going to be an embarrassment, I think, <laughs> for the state of Nevada. Uh, and it's sort of unprecedented. Well, good start. Good start. But good start. Just to, let's frame it with that or whatever. I think that's important. Uh, so in 2021, the Nevada state legislature uh, passed legislation to require the county government, the state, to hold presidential primaries. The idea was that we were going to move from a caucus state, which we've been, to a presidential primary. It was sort of part of the overall push for Democrats to be like first in the nation. That's a designation they didn't quite get, even though we're really, I think we're third in the country. But what happened after that was that the state Republican Party was like, no, we're good. We're going to keep doing our own thing and not worry about this. Uh, So they sued the state. That lawsuit is still pending to try and say that you can't force us to have a presidential primary. So essentially what the state Republican Party is doing is holding their own caucus while the state holds a 
mandated, legally required by the state law primary caucus. But what the state Republican Party did was say, you cannot participate in our caucus if you file for the primary. So essentially, Mm. Michael McDonald and crew, that's the head of the state Republican Party, said, choose us or them. And so we've seen a split. Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, and Tim Scott filed for the primary. That's the state-run one. And Ron DeSantis, Donald Trump, Vivek Ramaswamy, Chris Christie, and Doug Burgum registered for the caucus. Now, the important thing to note here is that the way the caucus is working is that only the caucus winner has the ability to win any delegates for the state. And and that's for the Electoral College? Uh, Correct. Yeah, for the, for, the, for the tallying that they do at the, the national convention to, to pick their eventual thing. So there there's a this is going to lead to a lot of confusion because the events are two days apart. Uh, primary will be all mail ballots uh, sent out to registered Republicans. So come January or so, a bunch of Republicans are going to get a primary ballot asking them to vote for Nikki Haley, Mike Pence or Tim Scott. And they're going to be like, what about Donald Trump? Who's like, Mm. clearly all polls say you're still the winner, but he's not going to be on there. So for casual voters, for people who are not following the news every day, I think that the concern right now is that there's going to be a lot of confusion as to why this is happening and why bother. Can can they vote in both, though? Like if they vote in the primary, can they then, then go and vote in the caucus? Yes. Okay. Individual voters can um, vote in both of them. They can participate in both of them. There are different requirements, but you can participate in both of them legally and there's no problem. But whether or not people will understand that and sort of, you know, is a whole different story. Well, I think the understanding is the core here. uh, And and while I want to talk about some of the pros and cons of doing it this way, uh, I, I think it's probably like... I want to do a quick clarification. So the state-run primary with the three candidates that you indicated, that's a very traditional thing. People will get a notice in the mail or they'll get a ballot. They can mail it in. They could show up to a traditional polling place where they vote, and that all gets tallied. So very, very standard. Similar to what you do in every other election that you've participated in, yeah. April, do you know how a caucus looks? Like, could you give a picture of what a caucus looks like that's different? You know, um, it is different. So caucuses, there are uh, precincts, basically, that you have to go to. So, like, depending on how old you are, you might remember when you only had one voting place instead of now you can go to sort of anywhere in the valley, right? But um, so caucuses, you have to go to your specific neighborhood precinct and you have to participate. It usually takes a little bit longer uh, and often it's not a private thing. So like in a voting booth, you go in there and you can vote for whoever you want. You could vote for Donald Trump, even though you can tell everyone you voted for someone else. Like you don't have that option in most caucuses in the format because you're sort of standing in a room in, in a corner sort of behind your candidate or whatever. The uh, state Republican Party has said that there will be a sort of drop and vote go thing for people who want to participate in the caucus but can't stay there for the whole process. Now, is it up to the Republican Party to get the word out to the people where the precincts are and what times they're going to be expected to be there and all that? Yes. All of that will fall on the Republican Party to sort of tell its members, here's where you need to go, here's how you participate and all of that. At the same time, the state, uh, the Secretary of State's office and the county uh, registrars of voters, they will also have an obligation to tell people where to vote on the primary. So we may see competing messages. Oh. The Secretary of State's office has been really clear that like 
They want to inform voters and that if anybody comes to them with questions about the caucus, they will direct them to the state party. So they're trying their best, I think, to help designate, to do what they're supposed to do and to sort of designate people to that. But what what that looks like in practice, it's it's a potential to be very messy. So is this basically like the state run primary is like, you know, when the school runs a Halloween party and then the caucus is like when your neighbor down the street, their parents are out of town and they like have a Halloween party at their house and it's a lot more crazy? Yes. That's a great analogy, actually. (laughs) Or maybe there's like a secret invitation that goes out and you have to know somebody to know when to get there and you're not sure what to show up with and what it's going to be a wild party or is it going to be calm? Are people going to be yelling at each other at that party or is it going to be orderly? Um, Wow. Okay. Uh, Guys, why would a candidate even bother then with the state primary if the only delegates are going to people who win these Republican-run caucuses that are sort of off that grid. Hmm. So the caucus is is largely seen as being designed to benefit Donald Trump. Straight up. Straight up. Though they haven't been very public about it, it's pretty much understood that the people who uh, registered for the primary, uh, they kind of know that Donald Trump is probably going to win the caucus. And like, why not make a name for yourself by winning the primary? Like, we're an early state. You might gain some momentum to help you in other states down the road rather than even if you lose Nevada. We don't have that many delegates, guys, right? So like, I think they are hoping that they can make a show, get a lot of votes in Nevada, and that will help propel them to success in other states down the road because they're playing a long game rather than just, just Nevada, if that makes sense. It's wild, though. I mean, this just really sounds like chaos. And Ron DeSantis, uh, his PAC criticizing this whole process, saying it was tilted for Trump. Of course, Michael McDonald and other Republican officials here have all denied that. They say this is a totally fair process. People have to pay to be on our caucus. Okay. $50,000. Right. Whoa. Okay. And (laughs) PACs like DeSantis's that have been critical of this are not allowed to participate in any way in the primary or in the caucus, rather, or they will be disqualified. So Mm -hmm. it really does seem like uh, a very narrow way to approach this. I- I'm wondering if this chaos helps or hurts the Nevada Republican. Look, look, look I get your your take, April. Is there any argument that this helps the Nevada Republican Party? It's, I mean, the, the state Republican Party, I can say, has you know made presentations to like the state secretary of state's office saying that they prefer the caucus because one, it's what people are familiar with in the caucus process, but also that it unifies the party and that Mm. it gets people in the, because right, like I said, uh, as opposed to just going to a voting booth and sort of being singular and doing it on your own, the caucus sort of is supposed to build community and sort of pull you in and get you involved. And the candidates are more involved because it's their job to get people to the caucuses. So like they say it's sort of more participatory and will better help them. Um, But I think that's a a shallow argument considering the counter being that there is this parallel primary happening and that it is going to be confusing to people. And I think it does raise broader questions about um, why our political structure is set up in this way to benefit the sort of two major parties. And as conversations happen with next year on the ballot, for example, there'll be the ranked choice uh, open primaries uh, question that will be before Nevadans again. Um, and, and I think it's worth bridging this gap to being like, well, maybe now is a time where people need to be thinking about how Ooh. we structure our stuff all together. Interesting. Because, mm. A little shadow advocacy there, April Corbyn. You know, well, I think, that, I think it's a conversation that people are worth having when, I mean, you got to remember that one third of the state is registered nonpartisan, right? Like, right. clearly, that could just be 
a default thing because if you don't pick one, you get defaulted to that. But I think it also speaks to people being frustrated with the system. Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, and certainly this is not going to help build trust. And people, there are going to be people who see that ballot and see that Donald Trump's not on there and think that there is a deep state conspiracy, even though there is an explanation for it. You know, So I, I think that it's concerned about people's functioning of democracy. <laughs> I think it gives the Dems a lot of fodder, too, to say, look at the mess the Republican Party is making of their own freaking primary slash caucus. Uh, so we'll see if that becomes a, a campaign point in the yeah. months ahead. See also Speaker of the House. Um, <laughs> so April, when is the caucus and when is the primary again? So the primary is February 6th. And mail ballots for all registered voters will come out a few weeks before that. And then February 8th is the caucus. So two days later. Well, it's the Nevada way. Not just one, but two winners. So (laughs) good luck to all. Good luck to all. All right. Well, let's move up. We've been following the story, but there haven't been any updates for a little while in the Rob Tellis uh, murder trial. He's the former public uh, administrator who is accused of killing journalist Jeff Gehrman for doing some reporting that was negative uh, about Tellis. Uh, Sonia, what are the new updates? We just came up on a year, just over a year since uh, reporter Jeff Gehrman was murdered. And um, the first development of note since then is that on October 5th, the Nevada Supreme Court ruled in favor of protecting uh, Gehrman's personal devices from police inquiry. They cited press freedoms. Um, of course, the rationale being that, you know, if police investigators searched Gehrman's phone and computers, they might find out the identities of anonymous sources. Mm. Um, as as we all know, Gehrman had uh, a career of four decades as an investigative journalist. So over that time, you rack up some sources. The police had seized one phone and five computers, so there was probably a lot of data on those devices. And that was uh, the defendant in that case was the, the Review Journal, his uh, place of employment. So instead of detectives and prosecutors combing through his phone and computers, the RJ's plan of having an independent team look through those devices is now going to be put into place. Interesting. And the second development is actually linked to the first one and happened on Wednesday of this week. A judge granted Tellez's request to push his trial date back to March. You might remember that Tellez is representing himself. Mm-hmm. And so he has filed a bunch of motions claiming that Metro hasn't given him requested evidence. He has accused them of misconduct. And he's also said that he needed evidence from Gehrman's devices which, of course, has been held up with this Supreme Court case. So sure. um, that is how it's linked to, together. David, my question, though, is does moving his trial date actually work in Tellez's favor? Oh, ask a lawyer time, I see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, it's ask a lawyer time. Well, murder trials typically don't go within a year. Um, that's very standard. I would have been surprised if it went that fast. Mm-hmm. There is a, a, a large degree of investigation that needs to be done and a, a, a motion practice. That said, I'm not sure that the motions that Rob Tellis is filing right now are particularly um, trial shaping, if you will, uh, making the contours of, of what the future is going to look like. But but certainly the fundamental thing that most continuances are based on and why it always is in the favor of of the person accused is that you're gathering more information. You're getting what they call discovery. And Mm -hmm. certainly, if there is any relevant information on the electronic devices of Jeff Gehrman and this independent committee deems that there are pieces of information on there that should go to Gehrman or the prosecutors, 
then that will move things forward. You got to remember that TELUS is also saying, in addition to the misconduct of the police, that they actually planted evidence on him and that he's not guilty of this. I mean, that's where he's going and that that's going to take a lot of time and that's really hard. So it's not unexpected, but it's always kind of all bets off when somebody's representing themselves because chaos will ensue. And that certainly is what we're seeing around this particular trial. I, I think the really interesting issue, though, uh, is about like that information on Gehrman's electronic devices. Mm -hmm. Um, The court was very clear about that, that, you know, reporter shield laws and things like that don't die with the person. I mean, we're just talking about data after you die as a really intriguing proposition. Should we all be able to control from the grave (laughs) our data? Or uh, is there just something unique you think about it being a journalist here? You know, I think there is a unique thing about being a journalist with the shield laws and and needing to protect that source. But on a broader scale, like, haven't we all joked about how, like, the first thing your best friend's going to do when you die is to come over and, like, delete your Google history? Or, like, (laughs) you know, it's like, you know what? Burn it all. all. If I die, I mean, not now, but you know what I mean? Like, when I was younger, I used to joke around. Like, if I die, uh, please go through my text messages, go through my photos, and delete all of the bad stuff before my parents see my phone. You know what I mean? Like, I think that there is a sense that, uh, you know, <laughs> that that in perpetuity, you you have some control over your life and, and things like that. And obviously, and I think it's different going back to Gehrman that he's the victim here, right? Like, I think it might be mm-hmm. a different story if he was, if there was a journalist or something who uh, murdered somebody and who was sort of on the opposite end where you were looking for sort of evidence that it might clearly be on a laptop or a phone that he was Googling, like, how do you murder somebody or whatever? Hmm. But in this case, he was the victim, <laughs> right? So, like, yeah. there should be – I'm not a lawyer, but there should be ample evidence outside of what was on the victim's thing that could have done that. You know what I mean? Like, it seems like the focus should probably be more on TELUS and what he's doing rather than, like, what Gearman's doing. As nosy as people might be to want to know who, he's, who's yeah. his, who his sources are and all of that, I don't know that it seems relevant or particularly strong. Uh, but again, I'm not a lawyer. Mm. I'm not even a photo friend lawyer, so. I am so intrigued of, about this idea of, like, our digital identities kind of carrying on after we die. Like, I mean, I think, you know, that Facebook now has a, a feature where you can designate someone to be kind of, like, your yeah. digital next of kin, right? Yeah. Like, like sort of like inherit your profile and so forth, which is important because a lot of times these things just get locked. And then, you know, how do you access sort of like the the memories and the story and or tell people like, you know, that someone's passed on. But increasingly, I'm kind of thinking about our digital existence as like a very like real tangible thing. As much as it's like pixels and ones and zeros, it's like such a part of our life that it's like real, right? Mm-hmm. So in the same way that like, even though after we're gone, we're not here on this earthly plane, really in any shape or form, we still have a say in what happens to our physical bodies after we die, right? We 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 get to determine whether or not our bodies go to science or get cremated or like... As long as we're thoughtful about it ahead of time, because yes. sometimes that decision just does fall in the lap of That's others. True. And also just like deleting stuff from 10 years ago that you don't need. Yes. <laughs> like, you know? Yes. Like, Marie I Kondo think, that stuff. You know, absolutely. Does this photo of uh, you playing beer pong spark joy? <laughs> Or I'm sure some politicians like, does this photo of me in blackface make oh, me happy right. in any way? Does this Ugh. off-color joke I made 10 years ago as a college freshman, is it, it could cost you your job in 10 years. So like maybe don't, yeah. maybe hide it, guys. Maybe delete it. You know, <laughs> it's, a, it's a good reminder. 
there's there's definitely intrigue. I mean, I think what Tells is trying to say is that somewhere on there, the real killer was texting and feeding all this fake information oh, to Gehrman, and I want to see who that is so I could point to them at my trial. Mm. Who knows? Who, who knows? It's obviously much difficult for him to be both his own lawyer and, and to a degree, his own investigator while he's behind bars, which he is. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I guess answering the original question, the the continuance makes sense on a certain level, but definitely the intrigue surrounding these devices is something that's a bigger story. Um, but here's a story that just keeps making bigger stories, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. such a tragedy, but uh, I guess we just have to hang tight before we get to any kind of resolution or what people seem to call justice. All right, let's move on to the third topic. And this is what I'm bringing to the table. I, I tweeted something out and, oh boy, it got 50 whole likes. So now I'm officially a social media influencer. Uh, and I'm just talking about the construction like every other Las Vegas right now around town. But my hot take on it was that some pockets of road paving and, you know, redevelopment of these little areas uh, with infrastructure are really causing small businesses to take huge hits, to shoulder like what can be months long disruption to their businesses when it comes to people's Mm -hmm. access to the business, to the inordinate noise that's happening right outside their windows. Um, You know, I'm a big patron of the arts district. There's a little intersection that has a bunch of very cute Retail shops, little independent places just trying to make it. And the city seems to have ignored them and their needs. Uh, Mm. All for the greater good. I get that. But at the end of the day, if I can't get to the place, look, in some of these places, the city is, you know, feeling the obligation, I think, to put up big orange signs with block lettering. This (laughs) business is open because you wouldn't think it is. Yeah. If you could even get that close. Uh, Mm -hmm. The other day I had to park blocks and blocks away, still had to pay for that parking to walk over to my favorite, you know, little coffee shop to do some work at, uh, although I love all the coffee shops downtown, dig it. um, And then uh, had to like traverse a very treacherous, that's been there since July, trench system to get to one of my favorite bookstores, Analog Dope. And all the other little businesses. It's Hunger Games. The city putting together Hunger Games so that to test your metal to see if you're worthy of going to dig at coffee. I well, you know, it, it is a prize at the end of that that quest. But should they have to like burden all this? And it's not just that area; it's all over town. And I'm just wondering what what you think the city or the county should do for these businesses that are being, in my eye, disproportionately affected by these lengthy construction projects that don't seem to give a damn about the businesses they're working around. I think especially, I'm just spitballing here, but you know, I mean, especially when you think about downtown Las Vegas, like the city is pretty good about marketing itself and doing things like they could uh, wave parking, like paid parking and the meters and stuff in that immediate area just to give mm-hmm. people a little more incentive to do that. They could... Um, you know, construction doesn't happen. The construction area is there the whole time, but they're not necessarily working all the time or whatever. So like on off day, they could have like a festival thing that just gets people down to the street or whatever. Like have a block party on a day when they're not doing construction just to get people down there and remind everybody that it's open and give it some publicity. I think there are creative Uh ways to go about it that certainly could work. Let's not forget the dark side of the government throwing a block party 
when That's they spend true. half a million dollars <laughs> at Commercial Center and all the businesses oh, are shut yeah. off from the people who are supposed to be coming there. And not that, that kind, kind of not that party. kind. Let's okay. not have a let's not have a major DJ come and have like I mean, that was its own disruption. Yeah, that was its own thing. In a lot of ways, that a lot of those businesses I think are still reeling from. But this yeah. is kind of like the municipality approach. We're trust us, businesses. We're doing something that's so much better for you. And meanwhile, if they even can hang on mm-hmm. to enjoy some of those tenuous benefits. Uh, what else can we do for them? Yeah, I'm actually really curious about the planning process. I'd love to know, you know, how far in advance these businesses get noticed, to what degree the city sits down and plans with them and describes, mm-hmm. like, what the ingress and egress is so that they can notify their customers what's going on and kind of, like, also budget for what's about to happen. Let employees know to expect, like, maybe some reduced wages or tips and be able to make some decisions for themselves around that. If, you know, they want to go look for alternative employment elsewhere, like, forecasting that next month's tips are going to be way, way down. I'd also be actually... Maybe riffing on your idea, April, of a block party, since we are now figuring out ways to legalize street vending, how about we get some of those businesses some like street vending carts, let them set up shop in some walkable areas, you know, make a little extra income. Uh, maybe the the city or the county could also throw. Them so if in. you can't get to the businesses, let's help those businesses come yeah. to you. Yeah, okay. yeah, all right. Maybe they could have like a little like fund, you know, to like uh, fund some alternative venues of sale. So for example, a fund that could cover the cost of like a stand at a farmers market, or mm. um, maybe could uh, throw them some like catering contracts, you know, through the city or the county. I don't know. Just spitballing here. Maybe it's oh, a lot yeah. more complicated, you know, on on the actual implementation side of things. But you know, just really thinking about. Ways to help those businesses out would be awesome. Yeah, I think the municipality can just like forgive and waive lots of fees and stuff if you're having to put up with this disruption. Or, you know, those businesses, yeah, exactly. Or the business can show what their normal income is that maybe even build that into because it does seem to be, you know, the same handful if even we get to a full hand of construction companies that benefit from these projects. And it'd be nice if like if their disruption, which they don't really seem to have accountability for. Uh, or time lengths, let them kick in too. Like, so if business A normally makes $5,000 a month, and Mm -hmm. now that because of this construction, they're making $2,000 a month, maybe the municipality and whether it's the paving company or the construction crew or whatever, you know, uh, well, not the crew themselves. I don't want to tax the workers, but the businesses that are making these big money off off of government contracts should have to kick back when they're disruptive. To those businesses directly, let them Maybe thrive and not a little quicker wrap up of the project. Right? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Any any shout outs to any areas of town or any businesses you're worried about, y'all, with you know the construction happening? I mean, let's put F one on hold for a second because <laughs> right. we see that's that's happening everywhere. <laughs> yeah, you know, I just actually drove down Charleston the other day, just uh, east of UMC, and that whole stretch of the street is like riddled with orange cones. Um, for a long so, time. For a long time. And it is brutal. Yeah, I tried to turn left from Ranch onto Charleston. Worst worst 10 minutes of my life. But uh, over in that section, though, of a uh, stretch of Charleston, there are some great small businesses. Poppy's Donuts, which on our fine podcast, David, is yes, your call. Yes, we, we determined to be the best donut of all the donuts we tried. Yes, we love that place. Um, and just across the street from them, there's uh, the second Le Thai, great little Thai place. And then just further up from that, them is Frankie's uh, Tiki Room. So Sure. And longtime florist, Debella Flowers is right over there, oh, too. Oh, nice. 
Yeah, there's a, a, you know a bunch of, of businesses that have been there. I mean, Bella has been there for decades, and huh. they're all taking the brunt of it. Yeah, so don't miss uh, that little stretch of West Charleston just east of uh, the I-15. Any areas now or in the future you, you're concerned about, April? Uh, well, Sonia told me that they may be starting construction on Spring Mountain Road, which uh, I w- will be very concerned about that because that's already, I'm sure, a really difficult place for any business to last because there's just so many businesses there and there's so many of them. So, like, if they put, like, Gabby Coffee and all of the ramen places and stuff on, um, you know, if, if they jeopardize those places, I might riot. <laughs> I mean, con- you know, traffic on Spring Mountain already and it's all the cars bad. coming in and out of all those sh- all those strip malls. I mean, it's got to be more strip malls on, on Spring Mountain Road per capita than maybe any place yeah. in the country. And they're hard to get to if without Spring Mountain. Right. Like, there's not back roads yes. leading yes. to that area. Yes. So anything in that area is devastating. And all those shopping centers are always packed, too. It's so popular. Oh, my and God. And they're already, yeah. So it's a vicious... So let's it's knock that down it. the one Do lane. Yeah. Let's get rid yeah. of the asphalt. Let's get rid of sidewalks. Let's yeah. put up big signs that say, all these businesses, we swear to God, is still open. <laughs> right. They, right. I think they just have to do more. I mean, yeah. uh, that's my call to action here is, you know, tell your municipality that small businesses need help. And whether it's direct financial or some of the other suggestions, uh, it seems like a better way than just hoping and praying that they can wait it out. You're here. Well, that went fast. Sonia, April, thank you so much for the Friday News Roundup. And we'll look forward to more conversations in the future. Thanks for having me. Thanks, David. And that's all for today here on CityCast Las Vegas. Our producers this week are Sonia Cho Swanson, Layla Muhammad, and Lizzie Goldsmith. Our newsletter editor is Scott Dickensheets, and I'm your host, David Figler. Music is by OG Moose and All the Kimonos. We record the show on the traditional homelands of the Nuuvi, the Southern Paiute people. If you enjoyed the show, hey, go tell a friend, rate the show, leave us a review, and subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back Monday morning with more news from around the city, and I just gotta say, Go Las Vegas Aces, back-to-back WNBA champs. All right. Hey, everyone. Till we see you next, stay lucky. If delegates are like the Halloween candy. Oh, here we go. (laughs) How did the caucus end up with the Halloween candy and the delegates and not the state-run primary? Why do all the delegates That's a great question. Halloween candy that. go to them? Yeah. That's a damn fine question. I mean, why do the political—why do we have caucuses in general? Why do political parties have so much power in general is my question.